Welcome to the sixth installment of Hometown Legends and the season six finale of Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. Boy, do I have a whopper of an episode for you guys. There's likely enough calls here to make this a two-hour or perhaps a two-part episode, but only time will tell. But before we launch into this behemoth of an episode, I'd like to take a quick moment to reflect on how we got here in the first place. Back in the early part of 2016, after a few cryptid-themed reality shows that I was working on failed, shows I was actually a producer on rather than on-screen talent, I decided then to take things onto a smaller platform. I decided to start this little experiment. I had this crazy idea that folks would be willing to share their paranormal stories, in their own words, uninterrupted. And I'll be honest with you, the going was tough at first. But through many of my contacts, I managed to string together a few episodes. Then, to my shock and awe, it snowballed from there. Nearly 150 episodes and tens of thousands of subscribers later, here we are. And I cannot thank you enough for your kindness, generosity, and involvement. I know it's a cliché statement, but like many clichés, this one is dead on. Without the support of listeners like you, this show would have never made it past Season 1. Now we're staring down the barrel of Season 7 and its equal parts amazing and humbling. So as we kick off this little celebration, remember, you are the reason that any of this is happening at all. So from the bottom of my cold, dark heart, thank you. And to address any rumors or incorrect information, this show is not ending anytime soon. So keep those calls coming and hit that subscribe button. This ride is about to get good. Our first Hometown Legend submission for tonight comes to us from Cass in my home state of Ohio. Hi Derek, Uh, this is Cass again from uh, outside um, Cincinnati, Ohio, really rural area. I live kind of around Bethel, in Bethel, kind of just outside of it really. And there's this place called East Fork. There, there used to be a cliff there, and now it's, um, it's filled in. There's a highway there, a kind of a highway bridge that goes over to East Fork, or at least the road that gets up to it. And um, East Fork is basically this, well, it was a town at one point, and it got filled up with water, and the houses and everything are still under there. Um, actually knew an old man named Tater. <laughs> I know it's kind of funny, but everyone called him Tater said that him and his friends back, way back when, used to go drinking at the bridge that was in that town. 
I can't remember the name of it for the life of me. But anyway, there was a cliff there and it had the highest death rate in um, all of Ohio or pretty much like towards southern Ohio where I am, right across the river from Kentucky. It's nuts, it had such a high death rate because people would come with their um, carriages and things, they just fall right off the cliff. Like it would just go straight, straight down and they just fall, tumble off, things like that. And it kept happening all the way up until um, they filled it up and put the highway there. But there's a man that said to like chase cars. And like, you'll see him sometimes on a horse because um, there's a four-way intersection right where they filled it in across the bridge and he'll like chase you from like the road that comes out of East Fork which is the one on the left and um, he'll like chase you on his horse and you know he'll chase your car try to get in your car a couple times because sometimes people think he's just a hitchhiker and this is the kind of place where everybody knows everybody so it's not uncommon like if you see your buddy that's been drinking a little too much for you to pick him up and take him home. And I mean, at least that's kind of how it is. Although people aren't too, too nice around here. Everyone's kind of suspicious. But yeah, he'll chase your car. So um, it says that he's like an old man that has like kind of like overalls and a dirty white shirt. And he'll be as fast as your car, even though it's not humanly possible. I'm trying to remember it as best as I can, but that our hometown legend but yeah thank you thank you so much you have a lovely evening bye-bye thank you Cass this is kind of funny because this story reminds me a lot of a place I grew up near a place that's actually pretty infamous for cryptid research and sightings but of course that's not the part that correlates with Cass's story you see I grew up near Salt Fork State Park which is now infamous for Grassman or Bigfoot sightings in the state of Ohio. But when I was a kid, there was something cooler about it. My dad used to tell me stories about a couple towns that were in the valleys before it was flooded in the 1960s. Apparently, if I'm remembering this story correctly, when he was in high school, you used to be able to see like a church steeple a few feet under the water. But of course, it was the full steeple. It was just simply flooded. Now, I'm sure by now it's been almost 50 years, if not 50 years. So I'm sure most of that has rotted away, but I can only imagine looking down and seeing buildings. Uh, just the whole thought of it is is creepy. Now that said, there was also a cliff there that has claimed many lives, but it was a bit of the opposite. It was actually people climbing up the cliffs and slipping on the moss. Typically it was uh, kids that lost their lives, tragically. Either way, I thought the correlations there were pretty interesting, so thank you so much, Cass, for sharing your hometown legend. Now, our next legend of the evening also correlates well with something I grew up with, but we'll touch on that in a bit. The following is Chris's submission from the state of Texas. Hi Derek, my name's Chris. I grew up in Dallas and there was a little known phenomenon amongst the people I grew up with. It was called 
the LBJ house. It was an old orphanage off of LBJ Highway that had partially burnt down, supposedly with orphans in it. I haven't done any fact-checking to make sure that's true. But there was a rumor that if you were to go to the top story and shut the door and sit there in the dark alone for a while, you would hear children's laughter and stuff. And if you would go to leave, the doorknob would be hot. I went with some friends of mine, and I tried it. And there was little kids' laughter here and there, and nothing like really that scary other than the fact that it was coming from nowhere. And when I got up to open the door, the doorknob was hot, hot to the touch. And I waited a few seconds, grabbed it again. It was cold, and I left. But uh, there was no one there who had like a blowtorch or a match or anything. It was just me and a couple friends on a whim. And that's my story. I know it's kind of short, but I just wanted to share it. Thank you, Chris. Your story reminds me a bit of Gore Orphanage, just outside of Cleveland, Ohio. When I was in college, I remember meeting a bunch of folks from the Cleveland area that were very, very happy to share that story with me. A story I believe I touched on on the last Hometown Legends episode. As far as the hot doorknob is concerned, that's weird. Certainly weird. If it were the daytime, I would wonder if there was perhaps some way that the sunlight could reach it. Uh, You didn't specify whether this was taking place during the day or at night. Either way, I think it's kind of difficult for the sun to simply heat up a doorknob in that fashion, but stranger things have happened. Either way, we truly appreciate you taking the time to share your hometown legend. Thank you again, Chris. Our next call of the evening comes from my backyard. The following is Danny's call from California. Hey, Derek. This is Danny from California. This is for your hometown haunts episode. Uh, I'm from a town called San Bernardino, uh, which is adjacent to Redlands, California. But just growing up, um, certainly like we drove out there a lot as friends to go hang out in Redlands because that was the more we'll call it, happening spot in the area. But Redlands, for anyone probably listening or has ever heard of it, knows that there's a haunted history, should we say, and there are multiple spots. But the one that uh, I grew up going to, probably because we were drawn to it initially by some of these stories, was Prospect Park. And Prospect Park is on the south side of the city and kind of leading up into like a suburban area, but it's one of the oldest parks in California. And it's surrounded by orange groves. And uh, since then, they've built a, a stage, which is they hold a, kind of like outdoor Shakespeare plays throughout the, the summer and, and when the weather's good, which is most of the time in California, I suppose. The orange groves that surround this, they're very creepy. Even in the daytime, when you drive past them, they're all clustered together. And in California, uh, especially as it develops more orange groves, even though they're they're uh, kind of iconic for the state. Uh, certainly you see less and less of them. To, so to see uh, a city that kind of holds on to these orange groves and lets them continue to grow is certainly something that's a little eerie. And when you drive past Prospect Park, I guess that would be on the west side of it, uh, it these trees kind of cluster together and kind of obscure your view. Anyway, the the true story that actually happened in these orange groves was uh, a little girl named Leanne uh, who went to Kingsbury Elementary School, um, and I believe this was in the 1960s. Uh, you can look it up online. It looks like there's, I, I found 1961 and 1963, but it's from old newspaper articles that have like been tra- retranslated onto the web. Anyway, this girl was cutting through the orange groves, and unfortunately she was 
she was murdered, and she was left out there. And Prospect Park uh, is just a little further up, and she was apparently left underneath the stage of the Prospect Park, you know, um, outdoor auditorium. And when you walk up to Prospect Park, kind of a winding road that leads from the orange groves. So as you're as you're descending up it, you can see the orange groves kind of below the city, and it, it the, the road goes on an incline. So when you actually get to the very top of it, you then on the other side of the of the trail, you look down into the auditorium. When we were kids, and by kids I mean 16, 17, 18, once we were old enough to drive, kind of a, a routine to go up there in the month of October, usually the week of Halloween, and walk up there because it was said that if you walked up there, you would see the little girl's ghost on the stage or around the stage. And just to put it in, into perspective, while we never saw that, uh, you can find lots of different stories of people who actually have uh, purportedly saw this little girl out there. And Or YouTube, you can look at videos and, and people will, will speak about it. But the one time we did go up there, I'm probably about 17 years old, and we walked up and it's now been so free, frequented by kind of you know, ghost enthusiasts and, and paranormal enthusiasts that when you walk up there, there's a, there's a trip wire or a sensor that goes off and it's a, a pre-recorded message that tells you to leave the premise, which no one actually ever checks it unless there's uh, any sort of reported vandalism up there, so you can still walk around. But if you're ever in the area in Redlands, California, um, and you are listening to the show, so you, you have a interest in this, uh, I do, you know, um, encourage you to go check it out. Even the orange groups themselves are, are very eerie. If you walk through them at night, I guarantee you, you will get a chill just walking through them. There's just a dark energy that you can feel. And, I, and I'll say first and foremost, even though I'm an enthusiast and I don't, I'm not a disbeliever, I also am a skeptic about this sort of thing. Rumors spread fast and, and have a mind of their own once they get started. But uh, Redland certainly has something about it. Very David Lynchian, kind of like that 1950s, maybe even older sort of uh, strangeness to it. And Prospect Park is probably the crown jewel of all that um, because also right next to Prospect Park is the Kimberly Crest Mansion, which is also also purportedly uh, haunted. And people have seen demonic faces in there or ghosts that wander around. Um, no one lives there now. It's now become a, we'll call it like a museum, um, even though I don't really think they give many tours that it's kind of become like a, a designated area for, for Redlands. But yeah, it's something if, if you're interested, you should definitely check it out. That's, that's the, uh, the story. There's, there's other areas and unfortunately murders, uh, purportedly satanic worship that happens in the area. There's a statistic that Redlands has the highest concentration of satanic worshipers in California. I don't know if that's still true, but yeah. So anyway, anyone interested, I, I direct you towards, towards that area. Enjoy. Thanks, Derek. You're doing a great job. Can't wait to hear this episode. Thank you, Danny. That's kind of strange because I can almost see Redlands from my house, literally. If I was a little higher on the hill and could see over the ridge, I no doubt could see the park that he's talking about. Uh, What's also strange is I had no idea that any of this took place there. I'm fairly new to the area and have been so busy I haven't had a chance to even look at any local legends that may have slipped by me over the years. So next time I'm shopping, maybe I'll take a little detour and check out the park. Now, I should state early on that 
Hometown Legends is not about validation. I'm certainly not out there to perpetuate any false information either. So any of these calls are to the best of our knowledge uh, without proper research. So please keep that in mind going forward. So thank you again, Danny, for taking the time to share your legend. Our next submission for this special episode comes to us from Jamie in the state of Michigan. Hey Derek, I'm writing a story about a hometown legend, the Calumet Theater in Calumet, Michigan. Tucked into the center of the Keweenaw Peninsula in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, the theater stands in downtown Calumet, a historic village which was very populated during the turn of the century when the area was best known for copper mining. Calumet was once known as Red Jacket, Michigan, which was the name of the chief of the Seneca tribe. The area was greatly populated around 1900, about 25,000 people compared to the current 700. I've heard from many people in my life that Calumet was actually almost the capital of our state, which I can't wrap my head around. Many immigrants, including both sides of my parents' family, came to the area to take advantage of the mining. In July 1913, there was a mining strike for better wages, hours, child labor and work conditions, and the one-man drills, which caused lots of accidents and loss of hours for some. This strike continued until the following April. In the middle of this strike, on Christmas Eve in 1913, the Women's Auxiliary of WFM, the Western Federation of Miners, held a Christmas party for the strikers and their families in the upstairs of the Italian Hall, which was about two blocks away from the Calumet Theater. There were hundreds of people in attendance. At some point in the evening, a few witnesses saw an unidentified man come in and yelled fire and ran out. A panic ensued, leading for a rush of many adults and many, many children to the front doors, which happened to open inward, leading to a stampede that killed 73 people, only three adults. I say happened because from Steve Leto's book, Death's Door, The Truth Behind Michigan's Largest Mass Murder, that theory was not in the coroner's report. Photos don't support it, but there could have been an inner set of bifold doors. When the hall was built, it had been cited for having inward opening doors. No one ever figured out who the man was that yelled fire, but could he have stuck something in the doors to prevent them from opening and ran off? The community had to use the Calumet Theater as a temporary place to ready and keep the bodies for the massive funeral about to take place. There have been reports of hearing children running around, laughing, crying, and this is just one story for the theater. Nowadays, it almost seems random to have an opera house or theater there, but it's open frequently, there's daily tours and performances, I've even performed there. It's one of the first municipal theaters in America. It opened March 20th, 1900. Some big names that have been on the stage are Lillian Russell, John Philip Sousa, Sarah Bernhardt to name a few, and Madame Helena Mojeska. She's believed to be one of the spirits that haunt the theater. She's performed there many times, and she has a painting hanging between the doors just inside the theater. I've heard many times the eyes of the painting follow you at certain times. The first story of Madame's spirit was in 1958. An actress, Adis Lane, claimed that when she forgot her lines, the spirit appeared to her from the balcony, giving her the lines. In 
Sometimes you can see her apparition, hear her talking, music playing, and cold spots. Our family friend, Lois, used to volunteer there, and one night she claimed that as she was shutting down for the night, and as she turned off the lights to the stage, she heard someone walk across the stage. There's rumored to be another ghost of a man who was murdered there in 1903. You can hear his screams and sometimes see his apparition. Another spirit would be that of a little girl named Ilanda Rowe, who you can also sometimes hear screaming in the middle of the night. The unique part of this area is that there are many little mining towns spread from Copper Harbor, the most northern town in the peninsula, south to Painesdale and Tri-Mountain, and people still live in most of these towns. A lot of the houses from 1850 to 1910 are the same layout, same exteriors. They each hold a lot of history and their own tragedies. So, my hometown legend has many stories, and I will write back with more. Thank you, Jamie. I love the nickname Red Jacket. It reminds me of my favorite hockey team. Now, something else this story reminds me of is a monumental disaster that took place in the early 1900s. And of course, I'm talking about the Hartford Circus Fire. For more information on that, I kick it over to Horror Stories on YouTube. The Hartford Circus Fire occurred on July 6, 1944, during a Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey circus performance in Hartford, Connecticut. The tragedy took the lives of 167 to 169 people and left more than 700 injured. It is considered one of the worst fires in U.S. history. On the day of the fire, the circus attendance was said to be between 6,000 to 8,000 people, mostly women and children. The cause of the fire is unknown, but back in those days it was common to waterproof the circus tent with a paraffin wax that had been dissolved in gasoline. This caused the flames to spread rapidly, and within eight minutes, the burning tent collapsed, trapping hundreds of spectators beneath it. As panic ensued, People flooded to the exits, but two of them were blocked by chutes that were used to bring the big cats in and out of the tent. This left two exits open that were jammed with people who began to pile up on each other. Most of the victims died from burns or smoke inhalation, but some were trampled to death and others died suffocating under piles of bodies. More lives were lost as people began jumping from the bleachers in hopes they could escape through the sides of the tent. Many were also burned by the paraffin wax that began raining down from the ceiling. Six years after the fire, a man named Robert Dale Segui, who was serving a 40-year sentence for arson, claimed he was responsible for setting the circus fire after he had a nightmare about an Indian riding a flaming horse that told him to set fires. However, no evidence could be linked to the convict, and Robert Segui later recanted his confession. Now, of course, you can and should watch the full video. A link can be found in the show notes for tonight's episode. And I will also mention this one last thing. Jamie mentioned the actress Sarah Bernhardt. I have a very interesting third-person story about that particular French actress. You see, I'm a huge Tom Waits fan. I love his music, I love his writing, and I love his folksy approach to things. I recall a concert back in, I want to say, 2008 where he was talking about the legendary actress Sarah Bernhardt. Apparently, in her older years, she had a leg removed due to some knee issues. And at a certain point, somebody purchased the leg from the doctor that removed it. And while on tour, she was doing performances for, I believe, a nickel a ticket. 
across the street at the Oddities Museum, you can pay 10 cents a ticket to see Sarah's leg. And I always thought that was hilarious. At any rate, thank you, Jamie, for taking the time to share your hometown's legend. Now, our next call of the evening comes to us from a familiar voice. The following is TJ's story from the state of Alabama. Hi, Derek. This is TJ from Salem, Alabama. This is for Hometown Legends. So, I grew up in a town called Lafayette, Alabama, and there was this dirt road. It took about an hour to get down this road, but it was always nicknamed Devil Worshippers Road. Um, my mom told me that back in when she was a kid that uh, you would see people in cloaks out there and sometimes cats or dogs hanging from trees, various animals and things like that. And uh, she said that once when she was 16, she was with a guy that was trying to act tough, you know, and took her out there to impress her and they shut off the car in the middle of the road. And uh, she started freaking out and got him to turned the vehicle back on, and when the headlights came on, they had been surrounded by people in cloaks. Um, So, of course, they sped off, and she's been afraid of that road my entire life. Um, I've been down it many times and never had anything happen. But, you know, hometown legends. Well, right as I was about 12, 13, something like that, my parents got divorced, and my dad moved to Beulah, Alabama. Beulah, Alabama, has its own legend. It's the witch's graveyard. There's a cemetery on a dirt road that is hidden back off in the woods, and uh, the newest grave in it is from 1896. Um, Some of them aren't even marked. They're just piles of rocks, and uh, many of them are Freemasons. Um, I assume that because of the Masonic symbols, people think that witches were buried there. Maybe there is a witch that's buried there, as the rumor has it. But uh, the legend also goes that if you overstay, you're welcome. That when you go to leave, a black truck will follow you down the road. And if it catches up to you, there will be a wreck with no survivors. And there again, if no one survives, how do you know that there's a wreck with no survivors? But anyway, those are my two hometown legends. Hope you enjoy them. Thanks. Keep up the good work. Thank you, TJ. I remember hearing all kinds of stories about devil worship growing up. My parents would reference different stories from our area. Now, the craziest part of all these satanic panic stories is that a vast majority of them simply weren't true. Sure, there were instances where this kind of thing would happen from time to time. But in the 80s, it didn't happen on every corner, as people like to make it seem. There's plenty of weird stuff out there. There's no need for us to be uh, fabricating or embellishing any facts. That said, TJ's local haunt seems downright terrifying. I certainly get shades of Jeepers Creepers from his story. So thank you again, TJ, for sharing your legend. Now our next submission for the evening comes to us in written form. The following is Dreamy's submission. Hi, Derek. Not sure if I'm late on this. I never thought where I grew up would have any urban legends. But I think I'll share this one with you and my fellow listeners as it pertains to a personal story that I experienced as a teenager. 
This urban legend is on a local theme park, one where you can ride the rides, and once a year you can sit in the grass and watch fireworks on the 4th of July. As I read some of the accounts, my own story now makes sense. People would see a man laying face down thinking he was dead. These are days before cell phones, so you had to go find a payphone to call the police. Many say the person seemed real enough to touch. Of course, when the police show up, they're not surprised to find no one there. It's been dubbed John D. I never knew the stories until learning just now. But I never knew these stories. I'm just learning them now. As a teenager, I often spent the weekend at my best friend's during the 4th of July. One hot year, my friend and I decided to play in the dry creek that's in front of my friend's house. The weeds were so tall that we had to play Marco Polo just to keep each other in sight. Once, I got turned around and panicked. As I turned around, I tripped over something. One of my friends found me and said we need to call the cops. I didn't see what it was. He just told me to keep walking and walk with him. I don't really know what happened, but I heard from my friend telling the cops about a man dead in the creek. The next week, we drove to my friend's house. We saw the city had pretty much bulldozed the tall weeds. Believe me or not, this experience has followed me the next three or four Fourth of Julys after that. I hope you can use this story. The theme park was called Great America at the time. It changes its name every couple of years. All the best, Dreamy. Thank you, Dreamy. The mention of something strange happening at an amusement park instantly brought me back to some research I did several years ago. You see, there's a place in West Virginia. There's an amusement park in West Virginia. Now, of course, I'm talking about Lake Shawnee Amusement Park. For more on that, I'm going to kick it over to the Speakeasy from YouTube. The Lake Shawnee Amusement Park. The Lake Shawnee Amusement Park in Rock was built in the 1920s atop land that was absolutely drenched in blood throughout history. It was once the site of the Mitchell Clay Farm, where three of the Clay children were killed by Native Americans and several Native Americans were killed in retaliation. But the legend doesn't even begin there. Before the Clay family settled, the land was quite actually a desecrated Native American burial ground, which we can assume the Clay family further desecrated by settling there in the first place. The park eventually closed down in 1966 after adding a further six bodies to the count during its operation. Visitors to this abandoned park report a wide range of paranormal happenings including disembodied demonic laughter, the sounds of children on the swings, and whispering that sounds like it's coming from right behind people. A little girl was killed on the swing set and her apparition is commonly reported there, sometimes drenched in blood. Around the old pool, a gurgling sound can be heard from its empty depths, and the spirit of a little boy who drowned there often appears to visitors. Also reported are shadowy apparitions, the smell of gunpowder, the sound of phantom musket fire, tribal drums, and blood-curdling screams in the dead of night. Again, I encourage you to watch the full video. A link can be found in the show notes. Thank you again, Dreamy, for taking the time to share your legend. I truly hope it was some sort of false memory or perhaps a practical joke and not a dead body in the weeds. Thank you again for sharing. Our next call takes us to the state of New Jersey. The following is Keith's submission. Hey Derek, this is Keith in New Jersey. I'm calling in with a story for your hometown legends uh, episode, if you want to use it. Uh, this story goes way back to 1833 and it's out of Morristown, New Jersey. Uh, back in April of 1833, a, uh, a 
French immigrant named Antoine LeBlanc arrived in America, in New York, and he was expecting to make a fortune in the in his new country and perhaps go back to his, his native country one day. Uh, but he got here, and a, a couple of days later, he made his way to Morristown, New Jersey, which was at that time was not a large town, but still uh, somewhat of a hub in, in the northern part of the state. Uh, and he quickly found a a job as a farmhand on the property of Samuel Sayer, who was a very well-respected, well-known, popular judge at the time. Uh, but what he didn't realize was uh, Judge Sayer had no intention upon on paying him any money. He would have given him given him room and board, but he was not going to pay him. And that kind of got Antoine a little upset, to say the least. So he wasn't there. He was only there for a couple of days, and he already began to plot his. Uh, came up with a little plan in which he was going to rob the Sayers while at the same time murdering them. Uh, so one night when he he was, part of his job was to look after the horses. So one night he went in and told Mr. Sayer, there's, there's something wrong with one of the horses. So Mr. Sayer, or Judge Sayer, came out to look at, see what the problem was. And Antoine came up from behind him with a shovel and bludgeoned him to death in the barn. After a while, his wife, who was Sarah Sire, was wondering what, where her husband had been, why he, he was gone for so long, and she went out to the barn to check it out. And Antoine did the same to her. Uh, so he semi-hid the bodies under hay in the barn. Then he went inside the Sayer house, and the Sayers had a servant named Phoebe. Some believe that she was a slave. It's not really clear. But she was an African-American woman. Uh, and he went in the house with a club, and he bludgeoned her to death in her bed. Uh, then he proceeded to rob the Sayers, put a bunch of valuables in, in a bunch of bags, uh, steal one of the horses, and hastily flee. Uh, the next morning townspeople actually found some of the Sayers' personal belongings on the ground. So in Antoine's haste to leave, he actually dropped a number of things, essentially creating a trail for them to follow. Uh, so there was a, a massive manhunt went underway, and uh, they, they had determined that he had fled east, probably to go back to New York and flee back to France. Uh, he was found about 15 miles east in an inn, uh, and on him was a possess on his possession was a bunch of the Sayers' belongings. So obviously he was caught red-handed. He was brought back to Morristown. Uh, there was a very quick trial. Uh, an interesting side note here is that it was the first trial in America in which defense lawyers, the public defenders, argued that the location of the trial should be moved because he couldn't get a fair trial in Morristown because everybody in that town wanted their heads, wanted his head rather, for murdering two of the most popular people in town. Uh, the lawyers were probably right, but you know it was only 1833. That was, that was a new idea, and it didn't happen. So he was tried in Morristown. 
found guilty very, very quickly, and he was sentenced to death by hanging on the town green. So a month after he, just over a month after he had arrived in, in America, he was headed to the gallows. His hanging was attended by, they say, 10 to 12,000 people. It was actually a very big event at the time. Uh, so the execution went through. The story does not end there because there was an agreement between town officials and a, and a local doctor that Antoine's body would be brought to the doctor for medical research after he was executed. So he was brought to the doctor. Uh, it was m less medical research than, than bizarre medical experiments. At the time, electricity was, was a brand new idea. So this doctor, his name was Dr. Canfield, he decided that he's going to do multiple experiments on the body using electricity. Um, he thought maybe perhaps electricity would could bring him back to life. Uh, so he, he, he did experiments shooting electricity through the body. He got some limbs to twitch, his eyes to roll back, but that was it. Uh, so the experiments came to an end. And as a further act of, of public revenge on, on this horrible person, the doctor actually skinned Antoine and his, his human skin was actually made into a bunch of trinkets such as wallets, a couple coin purses, book bindings, uh, and they were distributed to, you know, uh, the upper class uh, members of the town, and they were actually very wildly popular. They were, they were hot items that everybody wanted, and of course only a few people got. Uh, a wallet actually still exists. It's at the Morristown Library, uh, nicely uh, stored. You can go in and request to see it, but it is his human a wallet of Antoine's human skin, and they are also in possession of Antoine's death mask that was made after his execution. So that's another little gruesome aspect of the story. Uh, so, you know, that, that incident was over, but the idea of, of Phoebe, or Phoebe didn't seem to want to go gracefully to the other side. For years and decades after, the Sayer house was reported to be haunted by her ghost. Uh, and, you know, roughly over 100 years later, that building became a restaurant in town. It became very popular. It was new, had a few names. A couple of the names were Jimmy's Haunt. Uh, it was named Phoebe for a while, or Phoebe's. Uh, but there were various reportings of, of hauntings in the building. Uh, I actually knew someone who worked there. And she had heard all the stories from, from current employees and former employees. Some of the things included were doors opening and closing uh, with nobody there. Just there'd be a, the just the employees would be there, and they would hear doors opening and closing either downstairs or upstairs, and nobody was down there or up there. Lights would go on in the middle of the night, and nobody had a clue as to where the switches to these lights were. They would just go on and off by their own. Uh, a couple of employees actually saw a candle moving through the restaurant without anybody carrying it, just a floating candle moving through. Uh, another employee felt a cold hand on their shoulder once. Uh, and there are various, there are always, a, a lot of the employees heard footsteps on the second floor of the restaurant, which is where Phoebe's room was. 
So take that for what it's worth. But uh, unfortunately, the that restaurant was torn down within the past ten years. Uh, and uh, you know what else? A bank was built on that property. So you know Phoebe had been, or they, people said it was Phoebe. Maybe it was the Sayers, or maybe it was who knows. But there had been a haunting in that building for decades upon decades. And then all of a sudden it was it was raised to the ground. So, you know, Phoebe was somewhat of a legend in this town. Everybody knew about, knew that story. Everybody knew the the history of the building. But uh, what people have been wondering wondering since is since that building has been torn down, what happened to Phoebe's spirit? Is she still there? Is she lurking on the property? Is she haunting the bank? Who knows? But uh, you know, it, it was a story that it's a story that's been with the town for a very very long time, and. Uh, you know, every now and then you still hear it. it it's been on TV. It's been in a, in a number of magazines. But, you know, I myself, I wonder, you know, is Phoebe still with us? Is she, is she still around or has she finally gone over to the other side? So that's the story of Antoine LeBlanc, the Sayers, and Phoebe. And uh, love your podcast. Thanks. Keep it up. Talk to you later. Thank you, Keith. It seems like murder and true crime was a big draw even back into the early 19th century. The details of your story remind me of something that I learned back in college while doing a short film documentary. I went to college in Wood County, Ohio, and there they converted the old poorhouse into a bit of a county museum. Now inside the museum, uh, there's an exhibit that carefully displays a noose, a homemade knife, and a jar with a few severed fingers in it. Now, as it turns out, back in the 1800s, 1883 to be exact, a man named Karl Bach murdered his soon-to-be ex-wife. It seems he was staying in the barn uh, while their divorce was going through, and one day he became angry, went into the house, and basically butchered her where she sat. The following account from the Bolingwood County Sentinel gives a little more detail. In the middle of the room, in a pool of blood, lay the body of a woman. The floor, walls, and ceiling were all smeared and bespattered with blood. Giblets of flesh, tufts of hair, brains, and fingers were scattered over the floor. The back part of the woman's head was all hacked to jelly. The left shoulder had been nearly severed by one terrific blow. The side of the head was cut open nearly from mouth to back. An arm was nearly cut off, and several fingers were severed on one of the hands. She was doubtless dead before the infuriated murderer ceased hacking her body. I distinctly remember going to this museum simply to lay eyes on these fingers. The funny thing is, 20-some years later, I make fake fingers for a living. It's funny how that comes around. Either way, thank you so much, Keith, for taking the time to share this dark and dreary hometown legend. Hopefully our next call will lighten things up. The following is Will's story from Indiana. Hello, uh, this is Will. Just uh, found your podcast and heard you needed local stories, and I figured I'd tell you the one from around here. I live in uh, southern Indiana, right along the Ohio River, basically, next to Kentucky. And over in this small town of uh, Utah near me, there's this old building and location up in the hills right next to the water called Witch's Castle, is what locals call it. Uh, the ghost story of it is uh, the location was owned by witches 
in the 1800s or something. The town didn't like them, and they killed them. That's not really true. There is old structures there up in the hill with waterfall, random buildings that people have built in what looks like to be a old dock along the river. Said most of it's destroyed. The actual story of Witch's Castle kind of messed up. It's not even called Witch's Castle, apparently. It's called Mistletoe. And it was it used to be owned by, by a lady named Roach. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but... And she didn't experience anything paranormal. She did try to build on it. Apparently, her thought it might be related to some prince from France or something who supposedly went to explore the Americas or Cupid's of Columbus, but that's really uh, hard to prove. But the person who did own it built a uh, nice house, all these solid brick buildings, uh, look like ancient giant rocks, millstones, has this little chapel up the hill, a waterfall would flow through part of the place. Someone set it all on fire. Luckily, from what I read, nobody was hurting that, but after that, it kind of became more the witch's castle than mistletoe. And the land basically is kind of cursed for one reason. A girl from New Albany was kidnapped, molested, tortured, and killed. All the torturing might not happened at the location, but people who did it murdered her at Witch's Castle, supposedly buried her body in the hill. All that's really left of Witch's Castle now is the remains of an old chimney, a little room I call the dungeon, because it's solid brick, two-foot brick, making up these walls, giant stones. And there was only two entrances, one to the side, a hole through the roof that was climbed through, and a grate. Like uh, one of those old bars from prisoners. And up on the hill was a small little 4x4 uh, four four that has since been covered with graffiti of Satan symbols, rituals. Had happened there, I know this. People don't think there were Satanists up there. There was definitely Mary who was murdered out there, but no Satanists or witches as far as I know. The land is currently unknown. People go up there and as I told, seeing ghosts, hearing little girls cry, being you know, been there before back when I was young and dumb and took a picture through uh, the bars into the dungeon and saw the in the photo even though it was an old cruddy phone I saw what looked like horns and a head standing in there seeing my buddy pass out from there random bad vibes supposedly people think there's a shadow person out there another story related to it is apparently uh, some boy's family was murdered the original owners of the property by uh, a thief but the thief was caught and killed, executed, you know, by the government. The story is he found their family and murdered them and tortured them for killing his family there. But people think that's one of the reasons possibly why I might be cursed, but there's no confirmation yet. That's Witch's Castle. The other version of the story was kidnapped by some satanic cult people, was sacrificed to the devil out there. Don't know what was done, but I was there. Creep. Later. Hope you like it. And thank you, Will. Now it seems some people find an old, dilapidated building and build a story around its current appearance. Perhaps that's why most of these stories seem to sound so similar. Now, of course, when you're there at night, by yourself or with a buddy, with only the light from your flashlight, it seems like these legends are a lot more real than they seem when you're researching at your computer at home. So who's to say what's real and what's not? Who's to say what was reported correctly and what wasn't? Who's to say what the real legend is? Thank you again, Will, for sharing that story with us. And if you have that photo, please email it to me. I'd love to take a look. Now our next story of the evening brings us back to the state of California. The following 
is Jose's call. Hi, Derek. I'm Jose, and I'm from California. I don't know if this would be interesting, but before my grandpa passed away two years ago, he told me this town legend about where he and my father grew up. My parents are from Guerrero, Mexico, and where my dad grew up was a small town called Tehutla. It was the only town. In order to go to the city, it was a 40-minute drive. There was this bridge that you would have to cross in order to get to downtown, and underneath the bridge is a little river where you can get water, or wash your clothes, or shower. Now, as I explained to some people, that may sound weird, but this was a poor side of Mexico, and they had to pretty much use anything to maintain themselves. Anyway, my grandpa would say that in that little town there were people that would like to play with black magic. And on that bridge it is said that at night around 12am to 3am, if you're walking and you see a black cat or a black chicken, and if you kill the cat or chicken, a dead witch will appear laying down in your front door. People claim that if you try to move around the witch, the witch would either kill you or she curses you. People in that town also say that you can hear the witch slashing in the river or meowing. And there was a lady who also claims that she saw a man change into a chicken right in front of her. Now this is what my grandpa would tell me in his stories, but this one really gave me the chills because in Mexico you would walk to places or if you had horses you would ride, but since many people weren't that rich, you would walk to town. It gave me the chills because I've seen how dark it gets as you walk at night. Not a great feeling. Thanks for reading my little story. I enjoy listening to your podcast, man. Keep them coming and I will send you more about my encounters. Thanks. Thank you, Jose. I certainly hope people weren't going around killing pets and livestock due to this legend. It's stuff like that that always concerns me. I can't help but feel that way. Thank you so much for taking the time to share that legend. There certainly are some creepy legends from south of the border. Our next three calls seem to have a similar theme. Let's see if you can figure out what that is. First up is Marie's call from the state of South Carolina. My name is Marie, and my hometown is very small, and it has no real haunted stories. But neighboring towns do. One of the most interesting ones to me is Seven Devils Bridge in Woodruff, South Carolina. The legend goes that seven slaves were hung from the old bridge. The old bridge has since been torn down, but the new one is right next to the old one's former location. People claim that if you go to Seven Devils Bridge at midnight, you will go temporarily insane. As you attempt to cross the bridge at midnight, it is claimed you will begin screaming and crying uncontrollably. People have also claimed to see greenish lights floating in the area. Can't wait to hear the Hometown Legends episode. Keep up the great work. I will wait till all three of these calls are finished to make my comments on them. So next up is Robbie's call from the state of Virginia. Hello Derek, this is Robbie over in Virginia. I had kind of a hometown legend I wanted to share with you. We've got an old covered bridge that we have in the town of Mount Jackson that's just kind of been there for, I don't know, since the 1800s. And well, anyway, the story goes is that one night a girl was 
driving through it a long time ago during a storm and wreck and it ejected her from the car going you know the eastbound side and she flew out and passed away in the bridge and the story goes is if you drive through the covered bridge at nighttime with your headlights off and stop in the center of the bridge that you will see her walk across your car in front of you now we've tried it before and the only thing we've heard is weird noises and we left before we heard anything else but i just wanted to share that with you and enjoy the show keep on doing what you're doing thank you bye and finally tyler's story out of the state of texas hey um been listening to the podcast. Uh, this is uh, Tyler from Rogers, Texas, which is a little outside of Austin. But uh, I don't know if you're doing your hometown story thing, but we have this bridge in Rogers, Texas that is, well, locally we call it the Million Dollar Bridge only because the joke on that, a million dollars worth of uh, alcohol has been drinking. But uh, amongst everybody, it's very, very creepy to be there at night. You don't ever want to go there at night. Um, it's just a small little bridge that crosses over the Little River Academy uh, River. Uh, it, it, uh, things that I have seen there are like glowing orbs just floating around. And uh, we go to this one time in particular. You know, my friends are hanging out there and we're just, uh, just hanging out. We're, we're there because we want to see whatever's there. And, um, you know, me, I, I, I do a lot of research into this type of stuff, so I kind of knew somewhat what it might be. And, uh, I thought it could possibly be, because every time you go to look at it, it just appears. A little glowing orb, and I was like, it's probably a fairy or a pixie playing tricks on us or something, wanting us to mess around. But there's even weirder stuff that happens, like people see, lanterns down at the the river which is it's, like i said it's a really small river so it's not like it's deep so it's really hard to get all the way to the bottom but you see what looks like a lantern down at the bottom and if you try to go look at it it'll tr- like chase you and other people see shadow figures moving in and out and i know one person has even told me that they had uh pulled up there and there was a basically a mutilated that they had found there, so that might be some type of UFO stuff going on, but uh, I thought it might be good for your uh, hometown stuff, and um, I do have more, a lot more, a lot to do with aliens and stuff that actually goes on within my house, so we'll call back again and leave a little bit more with more detail, because I'll go in and write these things. Thank you, and love the podcast. And thank you, Marie, Robbie, and Tyler. Now, keeping with the bridge theme, I'd like to tell you about an infamously haunted bridge in Denton, Texas. Just one of many famous Goatman bridges. For more on that backstory, here's YouTube user Through the Realm. Local lore tells the story of an African-American goat farmer named Oscar Washburn. Mr. Washburn had moved his family to a house on some land just north of Old Alton Bridge. As some years passed, Mr. Washburn had become a very well-known and very well-liked personality throughout the area. He was known to be a very dependable and honest businessman. As a matter of fact, folks in the area affectionately dubbed him as the Goatman. At a certain point, 
Oscar, the Goatman Washburn, decided to place a sign on Old Alton Bridge in order to let people know where they could find his goat farm. The sign read, This Way to the Goatman. Back in these days, the success of African Americans, especially in Texas and the southern states, was extremely frowned upon by many. Ku Klux Klansmen within the local government were infuriated by the sign Mr. Washburn had put on display and decided they would take matters into their own hands. One August night in 1938, the Klansmen crossed the bridge and made their way to the Washburn's home. They kidnapped Oscar, bound him, and took him to the old Alton Bridge. There, as you could imagine, the Klansmen beat him down, proceeded to fasten a noose around his neck, and hung him over the edge of the bridge. When they went to confirm if the goat man had died, the Klansmen were horrified to find an empty noose. Thinking that Mr. Washburn slipped out and escaped, they panicked and rushed over to the Washburn residence. There they looked all over for him, and since he was nowhere to be found, the Klansmen proceeded to slaughter Oscar's wife and children and burn the house down. Legend has it that the rancorous spirit of the Goatman still lurks on the bridge and in the surrounding woods, looking for justice from the atrocious crimes committed against him and his family. Some say that people with bloodlines connected to the Ku Klux Klan, or slave owners, are at the most risk of encountering the spirit and his tenebrous agenda for revenge. I'm sure I don't have to say this, but you can find the full link to this video in the show notes for tonight's episode. The funny thing about these Goatman legends is that they can be found pretty much anywhere. I know Texas has a legend, Maryland has its own legend, and of course, Kentucky has the Popelik monster. I don't know if this is a case where the bridge was creepy, so they created a monster for it, or the other way around. But either way, these things are fascinating. So thank you so much, Marie, Robbie, and Tyler, for taking the time to share your hometown legends. Due to the length of this particular episode, this is obviously going to be a two-parter. There's simply no way I can cover all of these submissions in one hour-long episode. So I'm going to cap this one off for today. Over the next few days, I will assemble part two of the Hometown Legends special, hopefully having that released by the first of next week. And in a strange way, this actually works out well, because that's only two weeks you have to go without an episode instead of the normal three between seasons. So with all that said, I will leave you with one final call of the evening. The following is Sarah's call from the state of Illinois. Hi, my name is Sarah and I'm calling in regards to the hometown legends stories. I grew up in a small town about 15 minutes from the town of Bartonville, which was where my mother grew up. And in Bartonville, there's a building known as the Bartonville Insane Asylum or the State Hospital. And this building was open from 1902 to 1973. My mom said that growing up, one of the big things that they would do was sneak into the insane asylum and see who could last the longest as there were lots of ghosts and stories of ghosts associated with this building. Um, the, it was a hot spot for teens, like I said, and Dr. George Zeller, who was well known for his work on therapeutic treatment for the incurably insane, ran the building's operation 
for the majority of the asylum span. I've never had any experience with the asylum. However, I wanted to talk about one of the most notorious ghost stories um, that happened here, and the building has actually caused a lot of lore in the area. Um, Dr. Zeller is actually the one who wrote and witnessed the story himself. Um, many of the patients had no families, and so there was a graveyard designated for those that had passed away while in the care of Dr. Zeller. The patients were placed in a grave with a simple headstone, which was etched with a number. Several of the less afflicted patients made up the grave digging staff, including a man named A. Bookbinder. Upon the death of a patient, regardless of whether or not the grave digger knew him, he would sob loudly under a large elm tree within the graveyard. Many years passed, and A. Bookbinder proceeded to sob at every funeral for each patient that died during his time as a grave digger. Eventually, the gravedigger himself passed away. Over a hundred staff members, including Dr. Zeller, as well as hundreds of patients, attended his funeral. When the gravediggers went to lower the casket, it is said to have flown into the air as light as an eggshell. At that instant, a wailing sound was heard, and the image of Bookbinder was seen standing under the elm, weeping at his own funeral. When the coffin lid was removed, Bookbinder was nestled in the coffin, and the wailing and apparition ceased to exist. It is said that shortly after the el after this, the elm began to die for no reason. And ho however, when they tried to remove the trunk of the elm tree, effort ceased when the trail let out a whale. The hospital was open during a time when experiments were done on the mentally ill that would never be done now. Some of the atrocities included lobotomies, waterboarding, and shock treatment. It's also said there's a tunnel system full of old hospital equipments and beds underneath of the hospital itself. As a result of these experiments and the amount of patients that died during the life of the hospital, it is said that many of the ghosts wandered the halls. There was actually an episode of um, ghost hunters done at the hospital to um, see what they could find um, because of all of these stories. There's actually uh, points in time when it rains so much, um, it is said that bones start to come up out of the ground in the shallow graves where they've been buried. Um, once the the hospital closed down, um, all of the patients were said to have been released into the general public. And my hometown of Pekin actually had a story about one of these patients. Um, we would see her everywhere. She was dressed in red from head to toe, and she would stand on the corners yelling at all the street uh, on all of the cars as they passed by. Um, so yeah, there's lots and lots of stories that have stemmed from that. Um, but my favorite one is the one about the uh, grave digger. And growing up, anytime we drove past this building, um, it's just a big stone castle-like structure that is no longer in use and abandoned. And you would just get this feeling that something wasn't quite, quite right. And you'd always be looking at the building, trying to see if you could get a glimpse of something odd. Well, thank you for the podcast. And maybe you can use my story. Have a good day. Thank you, Sarah. Now, although the Bartonville Mental Hospital, or as it's also known, the Peoria State Hospital, is not a design by Thomas Story Kirkbride, it does remind me of my obsession over his buildings. I can tell you I've had a long fascination with the Kirkbride Asylums. Now, for those that are unfamiliar with Kirkbride, here's a little information on the history, courtesy of Wikipedia. The Kirkbride Plan was a system of mental asylum design 
advocated by Philadelphia psychiatrist Thomas Story Kincaid in the mid-19th century. The asylums built in the Kirkbride design, often referred to as Kirkbride buildings, were constructed during the mid to late 19th century in the United States. The structural features of the hospital as designed by Dr. Kirkbride were contingent on his theories regarding the healing of the mentally ill, in which environment and exposure to natural light and air circulation were crucial. Hospitals built according to the Kirkbride plan would often adopt various architectural styles, but had in common the batwing-style floor plan, housing numerous wings that sprawl outward from the center. The first hospital designed under the Kirkbride plan was the Trenton State Hospital in Trenton, New Jersey, constructed in 1848. Throughout the remainder of the 19th century, numerous psychiatric hospitals were designed under the Kirkbride plan across the United States. By the 20th century, popularity of the design had waned, largely due to economic pressures of maintaining the immense facilities, as well as the contestation of Dr. Kirkbride's theories amongst the medical community. Numerous Kirkbride structures still exist today, though many have been demolished or partially demolished and repurposed. At least 25 of the original Kirkbride buildings have been registered with the National Register of Historic Places in the United States, either directly through their location, on hospital campuses, or in historic districts. Now, if you've seen one of these uh, amazing buildings, you've seen them all. Gothic in nature, these massive buildings tower over you, almost as if it's an authority itself. I highly encourage everyone out there listening to Google Kirkbride Building, just to kind of get a look at these things. Or better yet, visit one of your local Kirkbride buildings. One can be found in almost every state. So thank you again, Sarah, for taking the time to share this call. And thank you for tuning in for part one of Hometown Legends. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Warren Pon Abbott, Addie Lloyd, and Tony Bell. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. And music for this episode is provided by Mayu and Coag Music. Thank you all for listening, and until next week. Hello there. You thought that just because this is a special episode that there wouldn't be a story hidden at the end, didn't you? Well, you'd be wrong. Tonight's written submission comes to us from Haley, in the state of Kentucky. Hi, I just finished listening to your season 2 finale about hometown legends, and would like to tell a small happening I experienced in my hometown. In Corbin, Kentucky, there's a place called Devil's Creek. In the mid-1900s, there was a church there. The church was said to have been filled with Satanists. There was also an older cemetery just off the gravel road in Devil's Creek. You can tell it's older based on the headstones, mostly just being rocks and stones, and not your modern-day headstones. 
They say that in the early 1800s, pentagons and upside-down crosses started appearing in this area, along with orbs, strange lights and sounds, eerie feelings, and some say a birdman was spotted there. Birdman was believed to be over seven feet tall, half bird, half man, and would chase you away if you came close. There is a slab of concrete where most believe the church stood at one point, but I have also heard stories that this is where the animals were sacrificed for the satanic church. Funny story about how I discovered Devil's Creek. I was with my mom. I was probably 14 or 15. We took a wrong turn and ended up in a gravel road. At the time, we weren't sure if it was a wrong turn or if what we were looking for was actually a few miles down the road, so we continued on. That's when we came across three huge, at least cow-sized carcasses. Right where we had stopped to avoid running them over, there was a smaller side dirt road to the left. The more we looked around, trying to wrap our minds around what we had stumbled upon, we noticed either a small cow, goat, or some other kind of animal about 500 feet off the dirt road, dead. Like, freshly dead. There was still wet blood around the animal's head. We threw the car in reverse and left as fast as possible. Once we got back to somewhere I had service on my phone, I looked up the name of the road, Devil's Creek, and that's when I read about a church that used to sacrifice animals to Satan. The story sent chills down my spine, but part of me also wanted to go back, further down the gravel road to see what else was out there. Part of me was also afraid of what I would find. So, I went back a year or so later. Now, I still never had an encounter with Birdman, but I did load up a car with seven other people one night around 10 or 11 p.m., I was about 16 years old at the time. We drove down the gravel road for about an hour and a half and got out and walked around the cemetery. We didn't see anything really notable besides some stains on the slab of concrete that I mentioned beforehand. We thought that that could be old blood stains, assuming the story was true. We had an uneasy feeling about being out there, but no real explanation as to why. You have to drive somewhat slow on this road so you don't get stuck in the gravel or the mud. Now, after we visited the graveyard without any story-worthy happenings, we decided to head back toward the main road. We had driven maybe a mile back toward the main paved road when someone in the car with us said she felt a very heavy feeling on her chest and started to panic. The driver hurried as much as possible, and the lady that complained of feeling pressure on her chest only felt relieved once we got off that gravel road. Now, that may have been pure panic, but she said she felt something in the car with us. Once we were back to civilization, we stopped at the gas station to let everyone get some fresh air, stretch our legs, etc., since we were all cramped in this third-row car. Me and two others went around to open up the trunk to get, I think, our purses out or something, and we noticed small, childlike handprints in the dirt around the bottom of the car, where the trunk handle was. We felt off about it, but just kind of brushed it off and opened the trunk, retrieving our items quickly, and went inside the gas station. Note that the dirt was from traveling on that gravel road. I've had a few more encounters at this place, but those two instances were when I felt the most uneasy. Nothing strange really happened beyond that point. We went our separate ways and went home. But I have never been able to forget seeing those handprints of a child on that car. There was no dirt on the car before we went down this road, and no one was around the trunk before we got out at the gas station. I think the most unsettling part is that these were undoubtedly handprints from a child, when there was not even any kids around, and that dirt was fresh. I love the podcast so far. Once I send this email, I'm going to check the site for t-shirts. Thank you, Haley. Well, thank you, Haley. I recently did some research on Gravity Hills for a television special that I helped film. And in that research, I discovered that a lot of times 
you transfer oils from your hands to the back of your car while opening the trunk. And then when you go down a dirt road, such as Devil Creek Road, and collect all this dust, it has a hard time sticking to that oily substance, that oily stain in the shape of a hand. So it's entirely possible that a day or two beforehand, some kids were touching the back of this vehicle and left some oily handprints that most likely weren't able to be seen without a special light or if the sun hit them in a perfect angle. So then, when you travel down the road, the dirt simply doesn't stick to that area, causing the handprints to develop. Now, this certainly doesn't dismiss any of Haley's claims, but it may help to explain them. Thank you so much, Haley, for sharing your story. And thank you so much for sticking around to the end of this episode. Have a good night. It all starts with an invitation to experience Lexus. To get behind the wheel. To go out on the open road. To feel a rush of adrenaline. It starts as an invitation to drive a Lexus vehicle. But it becomes an exhilarating experience. The Invitation to Lexus sales event. Your invitation is always open. But the offers only last through March 31st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Click the banner to discover more.